All right, did everyone at 101 get a copy of the next chapter on the back table? All right, in all of my work in this area for the last 20 years or so, 15 years, um, nothing has brought up more attention than this chapter. But of course, they haven't read the work I'm doing now. <laughs> but this has been something I've worked on quite a bit. And you've already been exposed to almost everything in this chapter if you've been attending the services here. You cannot come to these conclusions and then just keep it to yourself in the midst of your preaching for a dozen years or more. When Pastor Sarnicula was here, and we had some engagement and we were just having some great time discussing some of this and comparing notes and things. We went through and talked about the the nature of man. And I think it's one of the, next to the humility of God, I think it's one of the poorest taught parts of, and the most easily addressed parts of Calvinistic doctrine. When I went to the Philippines and having him having a knowledge of this and having read this chapter already, and yes, it's been there that long, been completed that long, um, he, uh, how should I say this, challenged his leadership using the principles there by having me engage some of his leadership. And in his church leadership, he, I don't know that anyone else among them you would call a, a non-Calvinist um, at some level, whether they're four-point, three-point, or full-blown, certainly the one gentleman uh, was a was uh, a full Calvinist and acknowledged it. Um, at least the others said, "Well, there, what else is there except Arminianism?" Which that's from a position of ignorance, and that's a lot more addressable than somebody who's adamant that there's nothing else but what they believe. So he brought this up in the midst of a dinner with all the leadership of the church and their wives. And Pastor Sinicola is a sneaky guy. He'll drop a topic and then walk away. And so he dropped this topic. We were at one end of this pretty long table at a restaurant. So he had me sitting with these three men. He knew what they believed. I didn't necessarily know what they believed. I had an inkling. He drops his topic on them, and then he walks and goes and sits at the far end of the table with the other people and leaves, it, leaves us to it. And so this is the information he wanted me to share and the perspective he wanted me to share with those people is what is the relationship of the not just the image of God, but the fall itself with the condition of man in terms of his conscience and his will. Now, uh, you can get engaged with any, with any Calvinist in this area, and their reaction is going to be so predictable you cannot believe it. I think they are all conditioned to just make one declaration. And once you get beyond that, they really struggle 
And you can see that happening um, because I could predict what they would say. They had no idea what I was about to say. And that is a very strong position to come to when you know what their statement is going to be. And here's a typical statement regarding man from a Calvinist perspective. Dead is dead. And if men are dead, then they can't do anything. Right? Because they say, well, you're dead in our trespasses and sins, and therefore dead people cannot have faith. They cannot believe. They cannot um, do good. They cannot know good from evil. They are just dead in sins, and dead is dead. How many have ever heard that from a Calvinist? That dead is dead, and there is no, and so dead can't do anything. Uh, the, and and it's really a, a silly argument because it comes from a place that's easily destroyed, and and it's weak because dead also means you can't sin. If you're dead and dead, dead is dead and you can't do anything, uh, then how can you be even sin? How can you even oppose God? And we're going to talk a little bit about that because we're, they're ignoring really the whole fall and what was going on in the Garden of Eden. But um, once you get past that, and if you can get them past that, because they believe that that is an argument stopper, they believe that's the end, and once they establish that with you, that uh, no dead people can ever trust in Christ um, because they have no spiritual vitality, and therefore they have no capacity, and that's the key word, capacity, to believe in God, unless the Holy Spirit makes them alive first so that they can believe. And that's what they believe, and that the Holy Spirit has to come and regenerate you make you alive so that now you can have faith in Jesus Christ. Not only can you, but you will have faith in Jesus Christ. That's called the irresistibility of the Holy Spirit. That's in the next chapter. We're not going to really address that. So the position that they hold is one that man is incapable of, of um, doing good in his sinful state. He is incapable of really knowing what good is. And he's incapable of trusting in Jesus Christ. He doesn't have the ability to do it. We're not talking about his wanting to do it or his leaning. For the, for the Calvinists, their position is very clear that he is incapable, man is incapable, unless the Holy Spirit, we're not talking about convicting work, we're talking about regenerating work. He has to make you a new person give you life so that you can have faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And therefore, uh, you cannot sense your sin. Uh, you cannot uh, acknowledge the truth. You cannot come to a knowledge of the truth. Uh, and you are essentially in ever in, in spiritually dead. And, and that is their mantra, dead is dead. Uh, you can't do anything. And so, when someone like me comes on the scene and I have a view that they have never heard and a perspective they've never heard, um, they, I, I don't expect them to be able to respond positively initially. They're going to become, what, defensive. 
because they haven't had an opportunity to process what I am throwing at them. Um, Pastor Sinicula knew that. Uh, I don't know that he had shared much of that with information with them. Um, even for those who are in the traditional uh, soteriology, traditionalists uh, don't aren't always articulate about that. And so even then, we have to take some time with it. But um, the impact of that, of this approach, is long-term. It is to plant seeds of biblical truth in the people's minds to challenge the rhetoric, and that's really what it is, the rhetoric that they have been trained in. And rhetoric is simply a, a, a series of points or thoughts, uh, a system of thought that you don't necessarily understand, but the, you are, that you keep rehearsing. And so we want to uh, engage this chapter, and again, this is some information I have been, I have just recently added a couple paragraphs to that um, prior to printing it. So there's actually a section on there that is brand new uh, that, that really only lasts two weeks. So when I say that I'm still writing this stuff, um, this is a chapter that I've had completed for probably a decade or more, and I'm still adding to it. Because these, this, these principles are, how do I want to say this? Um, they're not inventions. They are not new. They're really very old ones, but they have not been developed uh, adequately by um, enough men that have been published for us to really uh, know what bases we need to touch and how much we need to reinforce them. That is, I don't want to have another rhetoric to answer that rhetoric. We want to have something that has the discipline of saying, here's chapter and verse, here's principle, and here's logic. And so we're not going to use um, uh, things that are just sound right or sound like they can't be argued, um, rather that they are sound in principle, sound in scripture, and sound in logic. And so we want to approach this. And so when we talk about the condition of man, we are talking about three different states. Man before sin. What was his condition? Okay, that's one state of man. That only involved two people, and that was Adam and Eve, right? So, but we have that information. What were they like? And we referred to this a little bit last week. We talked about Jesus was in a sinless condition of humanity. Uh, and so he wasn't a child with the effects of sin in his body, in his mind, in his heart. And so as a 12-year-old, he could engage adults because he had a mind comparable to that of Adam before sin. So there is a condition of man prior to sin and that we need to study. And I try to do that in the chapter. We begin there in the chapter. 
The second question is, what is the condition of man in his lost state after sin? And then what is the condition of man post-salvation? What is our state? What is our condition? And all three of those are important in this discussion of God's humility uh, and our relationship to it. So we start off with our condition of man prior to sin. That takes us to Genesis, of course. And the great question that, that I keep starting with, I always start with this with people. I've done this for many years. <clears throat> I don't start an argument over total depravity. I don't start an argument over irresistible work of grace of the Holy Spirit. I don't start an argument talking about that. I ask a simple question. So I'll start with that question with you. Were angels created in the image of God? Simple question. Now, am I talking about man? They don't think I am. But I am, because only one creature was ever invested by God with his image and likeness, and that is mankind. So as soon as I ask a question about the image of God, I am asking a question about man. Do we share something with the angels that makes angels and man unique from the rest of creation? That is, is there something, uh, is the, are we truly unique or are we truly not? In other words, are we like the angels, or are they like us, or are we distinct? That is, we are completely unique in all the creatures of creation. That is, that we alone share the image and likeness of God. So I start there, and I ask a simple question. And you guys have heard me ask this question before, so no. Angels were not created in the image of God. Uh, they are certainly uh, uh, heavenly beings. They, are, they have roles. Um, and so uh, no other animal, no other creature, angelic or of this earth, heaven and earth, outside of God himself, is a possessor of, has been granted to be in the image and likeness of God. That is spectacular. Okay, and you might say, well, yeah, that makes us very unique. I don't want to use the word special because of the connotations it takes on in our modern language because special means that God is now, what? Yeah, he's obligated to save you because you're special. And so I don't want to use that. I really want to use the uniqueness. You are a one-of-a-kind creature. Uh, that God has extended himself towards in a unique way that he hasn't done to anyone else. So I start off with that question. I've asked teenagers at camp that question in front of their youth pastors and had their youth pastors go, what does it matter? Yeah. Why do we even ask this question? Well, the question is a leading question. Because the next question is, what is the image of God? 
What do we mean by that? What does it mean to be created in the image and likeness of God? Now, we're not talking about you. We're talking about Adam and Eve before sin, okay? Because you weren't created. Did you know that? None of you were created beings. You are all creatures, yes, but you are begotten. You have parents. You are begotten creatures. You, the only ones that are created, there's only three, well, there's only two, Adam and Eve. Even Jesus is what? God's only begotten son. So the son was begotten in the womb of Mary, which means that, but because it was his father was God, he inherited the image and likeness of his father. So you all have, have inherited the image and likeness of your father, but Adam had the image and likeness of God. So what does it mean to have the image? What is the image and likeness of God? And this has been a challenging question in theological circles for centuries. We have discussed this. And there are lots of different camps. And that should tell you something. When there's lots of different camps, even among evangelical, conservative, Bible-believing men, what does that tell you? There's no consensus. Some people over here say this, some people over there, and so we have those camps even named. We have names for these different camps uh, of views of what the image and likeness of God is. So I don't want you to think that somehow there's only one answer to that that is prevalent in Christendom. But if I were to ask most Christians today, and you guys aren't most Christians, because you've been hearing me harp on this for 10 years, <laughs> what is the image of likeness of God? What makes you unique? And the typical answer, the answer I grew up with, so I know it's an answer that is frequented, is, and I've been in Bible studies, I've been in church services, I've been in theology classes discussing this, and this is very, very commonly our response is intellect, emotion, and will. Okay, that's not historically where most theologians have come out of, but that's where we have landed in our modern era. So if I ask you, well, we have intellect, emotion, and will. What's the problem with that? And why did I ask the first question about angels? They have all three of those things. And you just told me they're not in the image and likeness of God. Only man is. So what we're really looking for, instead of these characteristics of beings with brains, um, <laughs> and that's really all we're describing, when we talk about intellect, emotion, will, you're just talking about a creature with a brain. How many creatures have brains? Does your dog have a brain? Yes, you want me to tell you an interesting tidbit of fact about brains? Every creature's brain is large enough to tan its own hide. It's called brain tanning. There you go. Throw that out at you. So that's why you don't throw away the brain, because if you want to turn the hide into leather, you got to save the brain to do that. And every 
that's creature's brain is big enough to do that. And so we have they have brains. Do your animals have an intelligence? I didn't say how high of intelligence, because if, if it mattered the height of intelligence, then really smart people must be more like God than not so smart people, right? Your IQ matters of where you are spiritually. No. Intellect is intellect. Do angels have intellect? Yes. I mean, when they come and engage with Daniel and say and have this conversation, when they come and engage with Mary and Joseph, when they when they engage with mankind, do we find them uh, intellectual? Do they have feelings? Do we find them rejoicing? We find them looking into things. They want to investigate things. They are they are amazed by God's relationship with you. They are intrigued by it. The Bible says they want to watch it. They they want to rejoice at it, and 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 we find them reactionary beings. Uh, do they have a will? This is a tricky one. Do they have a will? They must have a will because a third of them rebelled and followed after Lucifer and rebelled against God. You cannot make that kind of thing if you don't have a will. And so this typical answer that we give of intellect, emotion, and will is dissatisfying if <laughs> we start the challenge with, do we share that with angels? So that's why I always start there. I don't start by saying, define what the image and likeness of God is. Because they'll go there, well, it means we have an intellect, emotion, and will that's superior to all other creatures. And I was like, no, it's unique. Not that we have more of it, but that we have to have it, and the other creatures don't have it at all. That's what we're looking for, something of that nature. So there is a camp um, that goes to Genesis. Let's go to Genesis 1 and 2. This is where we find them. Uh, the Genesis one twenty six is our main passage. If you want to turn there very quickly. Uh, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and every other creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. All right, and so that's as far as we're going to handle. So, um, there's a camp that comes to this passage and says, well, what is the image and likeness of God is dominion. It is that we have dominion. And these are functionalists is what they're called, that it is really the function of subduing the earth. It is your function of having dominion over the fish, over the birds, over the cattle, over all the earth and over creeping things that creep on the earth. He again talks about subduing the earth, having dominion. That's repeated in verse 28. And so these are called functional theologians that, that really the image and likeness of God is not an attribute you possess. It's a role you've been given. That is, is that when you want to exercise 
your image bearingness, you do so by obeying this command to have dominion and subdue the earth. That that is the function. The problem with that is how do you pass that functioning on? How do I pass that on to you? Because what we're going to find is that um, the next generation is not going to be described as being in the image and likeness of God, are they? Are they? <laughs> oh, no, I mean, not from God's standpoint. So let's look at it. Uh, chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, blessed them, and called them mankind. Adam lived 100 and uh, the day they were created. Adam lived 130 years, begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So in whose image and likeness was Seth born? In the image and likeness of his father Adam. And so no other generation except for one person, that's Jesus Christ, is described as being begotten in God's image. This is a condition reserved for Adam. He was in the image of God. And he passed on image and likeness to Seth, to his sons, to his daughters as well, because it's male and female. So he passed on the image of likeness. Well, what is it that he's passing on? Well, it has been so disrupted by Adam's sin that God won't put his name to it anymore. He puts the father's name to it. We're going to put Adam. You're going to have Adamic likeness and sin. You're going to look and be like your father. Um, likeness is appearance. Um, image, again, is appearance. You're going to, there's something about you that's going to look like God for Adam. And so there's something about you that's going to look like your father. And so we have the functional people. You also have those that are really focusing on, on your physicality, some features of man, because we're bipedal and things like that. Right? Are we bipedal? What does that mean? Two feet, not four feet, or six feet, or eight feet. Um, we have just two and that we're upright creatures where the other ones are down, uh, and things like that. So you have another camp that really focuses on the physical features. So does God have those physical features? God is a spirit. Okay, so it's not physical features that we're getting from God. That's not the image and likeness. But there's something that we see about God that uh, he has shared with us, and... Um, and it's distinct from the angels. And the, are the angels bipedal? Yeah, we find them walking about. And again, whether they're spirit beings and so, but we still have physical manifestations of them. Um, the cherubim uh, in the temple had wings, uh, right? They had multiple pairs of wings, but to cover what? Their feet. They only had two of them, two to cover their feet, which tells us they were bipedal. If they had two wings to cover their feet, two to cover, 
They had two. Well, now we understand they have two. And so that's also a feature that is shared with angelic beings in the heavenly description of certainly the cherubim seraphim that we have in Isaiah and in the temple. Because in the uh, temple, in the Holy of Holies, they were to adorn not only the Ark of the Covenant, but all the walls and curtains and everything with the cherubs, cherubim. And so we uh, have a camp that looks at that. So when I come to this and I say, okay, well, the functional people have an argument because as soon as God says he's going to create you in his own image and likeness, he gives you the job of having dominion, the function. The challenge I have to, you, to them is that the function is not the image and likeness. It is the evidence of the image and likeness that God has granted us. God has granted something about himself that is not possessed by any other creature on heaven, in heaven or earth um, that enables us, that gives us the, the capacity and the authority or the right to have dominion, and that is authority. He has granted to us his authority. What do we use that term in the business community for? When someone above you says, he delegates. And this is kind of like what Pharaoh does with Joseph, right? What does he do? Here, I'm going to take off my special ring that anything with that ring, man, you, your, your word is the same word as Pharaoh's word. What did Pharaoh do to Joseph? He gave him royal authority. Interesting that it was with a seal, right? Something that you would seal every document. Do we still use that today? Okay, we have signatures. What? All right. Paul Schmidt had to come over to my house to notarize something for Mr. Schweiger, and he has a special thing, and, and he signs it, puts all the thing, does his job. He has to write in the book, but there's this little thing. He goes, right? You have a little press? Now it's a stamp. It used to be a press that they used to use to actually emboss it onto the paper, their information. It's a seal. It's an image that is put upon the document, and it really harkens back to when they would do wax seals and put the image of that royal insignia onto it, and it carries the authority, that seal carries the authority of the image that is in that wax. All right, this is a very, very, very old practice. People understood that if you carry this image, that's why um, political leaders, when they coin, when they make coin, when they when they produce money, what do they put on there? Their image. Why? It carries the authority of that empire, that country, and we still do that to this day. And so we can have coinage that goes all the way back into the Assyrian and Egyptian time and say, well, here's coinage. And, and still see, well, that's Sargon II or whatever. Well, that's the coinage he produced in the Assyrian period. And so um, this whole idea of authority being associated with image and likeness 
is very strong historically. I haven't mentioned any of that in the, in the chapter you have. <laughs> um, that's an example that I can't fit in the book. I could, but then the book would be like a thousand pages, and I'm not ready to do that. Um, but that's one example I use. So when we talk about the image and likeness, now, am I agreeing with the functional people camp? Kind of. But instead of seeing the function as being the image of likeness, I think there's an authority behind that function. What is it about man that gives us the capacity to have dominion over fish, over birds, over animals? What gives us dominion to subdue the entire earth? And it is this piece of divinity that God has shared with us, and that is authority. Now, once we have authority, what do we have a problem with? Huh? Responsibility. Once you have authority, you have responsibility. But we have a problem with God's sovereignty because, of course, most people believe, well, God is in control of everything or he's not sovereign. And again, in the definition of humility is that God that we've talked about is when God exercises self-sovereignty. Can God, con controlling man is easy, right? Can you control men? Come on, can governments control you? Sure, they make you drive the speed limit or they take away your money and you like your money more than you like your freedom, right? So you drive the speed limit, you obey the laws. And, or they come in, or can you be manipulated by people to do things? Yeah, you can control people. It's not a big deal. Okay. Um, how early can you learn how to manipulate parents? How early do children learn that? 18 months, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure by 18 months, they've become expert at manipulating their parents, especially if if mom and dad don't talk to each other enough. All right? I see it. I see my grandkids manipulating their parents with, with behaviors and words and things that they would never get away with with me because they know it doesn't work. I see this little kid come up, and every time he gets into trouble, he goes, trying to be as cute as he possibly can to try to manipulate me not to get him in trouble. It apparently works with at least one of his parents, but doesn't work with me. It does work with grandma. Oh, my goodness. Silas has got grandma wrapped around his finger. It's horrible. So I have to always watch them when they're together, see what he's getting away with. So for God, the greatest act of God's sovereignty is not controlling men. If you want to prove that you are in control... You control the most powerful thing there is. And the most powerful thing there is, is God. When he controls himself, it is the greatest act of sovereignty. For he is controlling the greatest power in existence. So in order for you to have authority, God has to hold back his own authority. 
That is, he has to create a pocket, I use the word pocket, a, a realm of, of where his authority is secondary. That sounds really scary theologically. That he is going to give you authority. You're going to have dominion. Do you know what the word dominion is derived from? What's the word of dominion? The Latin word. Domini. What is that? It's God. He made you little gods on the earth. Not in the Mormon sense, but that you have the authority, like God has the authority, that you are to have dominion. And so you are to control creatures, and if that means, uh, and you're going to control, you're going to have subdue the soil, you're going to have, you're going to have control. You have to subdue it. You're going to bring it subject to yourself as the Lord of the earth of the creatures. You're the Lord of the other creatures. You are the dominion, the domini. And so we are given that authority, and the only way that can happen is for God before he does that, and that's why we have this conversation. Let's do this. Let's agree that we will all three, Father, Son, and Spirit, create this pocket of where we will take a step back and grant authority to men that they will rule the earth. They will have dominion. Now we're talking about before sin, right? Remember, this is the category we're in right now of pre-sin man. How are we created? And so God says, here, I'm going to give you my image and likeness. I'm going to grant to you this that, that, is, that is the stamp. And, and I love that this morning had that in the, in the chapter this morning. That, we, that his, what is the, the, the light of his countenance is stamped on our hearts. That uh, his face, the light of his face is stamped on our hearts. That it defines us. Well, he has stamped us with a legal authority, a delegated authority, and taken a step back and said, it's yours. I created it. I am the God of all the earth, but I am giving it to you. So you can be the... the the authority on this earth, and the only thing that you don't have authority over is me. And so when I come down, when I give you rules and, and laws, um, you're going to keep those when I give you commands, do this or do that. You'll do that because the only one that, you, that has authority over you is me. No other creature has authority over you. And my authority is direct. In other words, I am not overstepping you when I engage you. Okay? Don't you hate managers that do that? They give you a job and won't let you do it. Don't you hate those kind of managers? It's like, well, you gave me this job. Just why do you overstep me? Why do you go and do it? Why are you working with the people below me when you gave me the responsibility to oversee their work? That's a poor manager who will that grant you authority and then 
abuse, <laughs> overstep you, and no, just you handle it. And so God does this. He grants us authority. Something he lends to us that is his possession. In order to do that, he has to humble himself. He has to restrain himself and sovereignly control his sovereignty. He has to control himself. Is self-control a virtue? Is God virtuous? He's the definition of virtuous. And if I ask people, that's one other approach I come to when we come from, a, when we have a moral discussion and not a theological discussion, and I ask people this, you know, do you think humility is a virtue? And, and I pretty much get a pretty consistent response from many thoughtful people. Oh, yeah, humility is a virtue. Self-control, self-control virtue. Yeah, yeah, I really look up to people who have self-control. You know, you can do stuff to them that should get them mad and enraged and go spinning out of control, but they are able to bring it under control and manage that, okay? Uh, it is... One of it, it, whether you want to call it a discipline, uh, a virtue, whatever you want to call it, the ability to control yourself, it should be looked up to. It, it, it's, it's a fundamental necessity. Um, if you're going to deal with uh, middle school children, it's a fundamental necessity if you're going to deal with criminals, right? <laughs> it's a fundamental necessity if you're going to deal with bad coworkers um, and bad bosses. Can you exercise self-control? Um, can you take it and not get out of, out of control? And, and by the way, it's a fundamental necessity for good marriages and good families to have self-control. To not blurt out every mean thing that you can think of. But in love, consider others better. And so self-control is a virtue. And then I ask the question, do you think God possesses that virtue? Do you think there's any virtue God doesn't possess? Well, no. Yeah, well, if God can control himself, then he can control any part of himself, and when he created man, we have him controlling what he controls. And delegation is one of the strongest words. I don't use it in the chapter, um, because it's not appreciated in theological circles. But delegation, um, he reserves authority. Is the person who delegates the authority to you surrendering it? He is granting it to you what he possesses. Pharaoh, do you think Pharaoh could have overridden any of Joseph's rules? Of course. Just because Joseph had the ring, he didn't have the capacity to override Pharaoh. But Pharaoh's like, I got this guy that's sharp. He got, he's in tune with God. He's got a plan. I'm putting him in charge. I'm just going to enjoy being Pharaoh. <laughs> he's going to run the country. I'm going to go take a pontoon boat down the Nile, you know, and see what's going on. Whatever. I don't know what Pharaoh does when he doesn't have to run a country. But um, goes and plays in the sand. I don't know. <laughs> uh, fishing. I don't know what he does. But um, 
But if Pharaoh decides, uh, he still has the authority. God still possesses the authority, but he has given it to man. And he has stamped it on us. You have the stamp. You have the image that grants you permission, and not more, more than just permission, grants you my authority on the earth. In a sense, we now can go and dictate things to birds. And now remember that mankind aren't the only ones who have been affected by sin. Uh, we don't know what kind of relationship Adam and Eve had with the animal kingdom. Um, but Eve didn't seem too disturbed with a serpent talking to her. Never thought about that, did you? Um, Eve didn't, wasn't disturbed by that. Oh, he's talking to me. Um, and, and we don't know the extent of that, but every one of the animal came. And by the way, the animals weren't afraid of men. That didn't happen until after the flood, right? God had to put a fear of man into the animals because now they were food, not friends. Okay? <laughs> so God put a fear of man in them. They didn't have that in the garden. They didn't have that at creation. So there was this relationship between man and the creatures and and Adam names them and they accept the name he gives them because he's the one carrying authority over them. And none of them are like him. And so when we understand that the command to subdue the earth, the command to have dominion has to have a root. There has to be something you have in or something has to be given to you in order to do that function. So the functional group is really close. The problem is they focus on the activity instead of by what do you do that activity? Well, you have to have authority. And so God is lending us sovereignty. I'll use that word. Because what's going to come up a lot in our study of man, are you self-sovereign? God is self-sovereign. That means he controls himself. It's a virtue. He calls on you to be self-sovereign. That means you have self-determination. You have control over yourself. Because he says, how many creatures do you have dominion over? Every, over the fish, the birds, the cattle, every creeping thing, and you're to subdue it. And, and then later on he says, every living thing in verse 28 that moves on the earth. And that includes yourself. You're a creature that moves on the earth. You have self-sovereignty. You have authority to determine your own path. And so I'll use the term self-determination quite frequently in my writing uh, and in my conversation. And what I really mean by that is self-sovereignty. You have authority over yourself. That does not mean you have something over God. Okay? God still has authority above me, but he has delegated his image, his likeness, his stamp of authority to humanity with regards to all the other creatures 
and I will contend even angels. Now, angels don't have that. So what does it mean to have authority? It means you have liberty, freedom to choose your own path. You have self-sovereignty. You rule you. That's what it means. Adam had sovereignty over not only the earth and every other creature, but over himself. He had the authority to choose whatever he wanted. And this is something that Lucifer saw and recognized immediately he didn't possess. What was it that Lucifer said before he fell? I want to be like God. What would put it in his mind to be more than what God already made him? With He's the highest angel. At that point, he is the pinnacle of God's creative activity as the highest angel. You don't think he has power and, and you don't think he has intellect and emotion, will. You don't think he has, he's, he's the pinnacle. And then God creates man. Not just a little. I mean, he creates man with something that the angels don't have. It's the only thing that makes sense is to say that, at, that, that Lucifer's fall occurred after the creation of man because he saw that God granted something to man that he didn't grant to Satan. Angels don't possess self-sovereignty. That is, they don't have the right to choose their own way. They don't have authority to make those choices. You can have a will without the authority to use it. Right? Um, this is what governments want to do. Um, the governments of India want to take away your right to exercise your will to believe what you believe is true. And that's why they have anti-conversion laws. All right? That is a horrible law. It is a violation of the very essence of what it means to be. It is the human right violation. Because it is taking away what, what defines you as being human. Is self-determination. I have the legal right, and you know, you know that I don't believe in the in the in the writers of our Declaration of Independence. I don't agree with their statement. You are not endowed with with inalienable rights by your Creator um, of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is nowhere in the Bible. But there is one legal right that you were endowed with. You were stamped with it and that is self-authority. And when any government wants to come over and say, you're not allowed to believe what you are, want to believe, they are infringing on that right, and that is the highest level of human rights violation, but you'll never see it addressed in any UN meeting. And, and you won't see it addressed in, in Catholic doctrine, you won't see it addressed in a lot of reform doctrine um, because they don't believe that it exists. 
And that's why in Baptist, why one of the main reasons I'm a Baptist is because they believe in individual soul liberty. That is, you have the authority to believe whatever you choose to believe. You are free to do that. If you don't want to believe in God, then don't believe in God. You'll pay that price when you have to stand before God, who still has higher authority than you. You'll pay the price for that, but it's not. I'm not going to come and put you on the on a rack till you say, "Okay, I believe." I'm not going to threaten your life. I'm not going to, you know, take the life of your family until you recant and believe the way I believe. Muslims will do that. Hindus will do that. That's why they persecute. That's why Christians should never persecute. Catholics will do that. Reformers did that. Renounce your beliefs or drown. That's what Zwingli did. Renounce your beliefs or beheaded. That's what Calvin did. Renounce your beliefs or be burned. That's what Catholics did. It is a human rights, it is the human right violation because we're violating something God put and gave to man. It is the only legal human right that I find in Scripture that is granted to men by God and should never, ever be violated by any other creature. But Satan didn't have it. He didn't have the legal right to self-determination. Now, does that mean he didn't have a will? No, he had a will, but he didn't have the legal right to exercise it against God. And that shouldn't surprise you because that's the way it is with the animal kingdom. They all have a will. We have a dog in our house that just chooses not to like me. I don't know what its problem is. I've never done anything evil to it. But it just probably some other men have in its history. I don't know. But it just doesn't want. And when I come in the room, it leaves. It runs away. It cowers off. And, and, I'm, and I call it and... and unless it's really hungry or thirsty or has to really go outside, it doesn't really respond to me. Uh, it has a will, but it doesn't have a legal right to exercise that against me, and, and so I can go up there and grab it and do with it whatever I choose because I have dominion. I have authority over that. That animal doesn't have self-determination rights. Sorry, all those, human, all those animal rights organizations, they don't have those rights. If they had those rights, we wouldn't be allowed to eat them. Okay, and I've threatened Molly. I said, I'll eat you. I've done it before. I'll do it. I can do it again. I have that right. I have dominion. I have authority over them. Satan has a will and an intellect, sees God create man, and says, wow, I want to be like God the way man is like God. So when did the fall of Satan happen? That's a big question, and that's in one of the chapters later, so this is kind of an introduction to it. Uh, when did the fall of Satan happen? Um, in Genesis 2 and 3. I believe in Genesis 3. I believe his fall is exactly the same time as our fall. I believe that was his act of rebellion. You might say, well, Pastor, if he doesn't have the right to exercise his will against God's to self-determine, but he did self-determine, 
What does that mean? It means he's reprobate. That means he cannot be saved. That's why Jesus doesn't die for angels. We're going to talk about that a lot more later on. And so um, we know that Jesus didn't die for the angels, right? Can angels get saved? No. God has made no provision for angelic salvation. Demons are going to be demons. Why? Because they don't have the right to choose at all. And so any choice by them is, re- is not allowed. Even the choice to go back to God. They can't. They can't go back to God because that would mean that they would have self-determination. They could choose whether or not to go back to God or not. They don't have that legal right because they were not granted the stamp of God's authority upon them. And again, we're going to have a whole chapter on that element, but that's why I start there. Okay, And so this is the inter- introduction. Uh, we're going to look at what it means. That's only one condition of man. We're going to deal with the other two conditions in weeks to come. What about, what about us? Do we now have that still? Um, and we're going to look at the fall next week and the consequences of that and how it affected this authority. Do we still have authority? Is it, are we dead, dead? You know, can we do nothing? Um, and we're going to really put a, a dagger in that argument next week uh, with a very simple thing that all of you know. And when the end of it, you'll go, why didn't I think of that? Because nobody wants to teach you that because we're too influenced by Calvinistic dogma and rhetoric. Okay, let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for this opportunity to look into your word. And we thank you for a powerful, unique gift that you've given to us of being, in one respect, like you. And we marvel at that. And know that it puts a heavy responsibility upon us, but also puts a lot of opportunity before us. We pray that we might lay hold of that to your honor, praise, and glory in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.